Hi, I'm Dr. Sam Bars. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Youth in Education podcast, where we explore developments in education, research and policy that affect young people, primarily in the UK, with a range of expert guests. This podcast is brought to you by the Centre for Education and Youth. Hi, it's Alex. Welcome to the podcast. We have a special episode for you today, the first in a series we're making this year about CFEY's new book, Young People on the Margins. In this introductory episode, CFUI Chief Executive and Co-Editor of the book, Loic Menzies, and Ed Fenker, CEO of Reach Foundation, came together to chat about some key themes from the book and the progress they hope to see in these areas going forward. We'll also hear about how they met, the influence they have had on each other's work, and some details about exciting future plans. Enjoy, and thanks very much for listening. The Centre for Education and Youth believes society should ensure all children and young people receive the support they need to make a fulfilling transition to adulthood. Find us at cfey.org. I'm thrilled today to welcome Ed Venker and Loic Menzies to the podcast. And this is the first in a special series that we're recording based on CFEY's new book, Young People on the Margins. Hi, Ed and Loic. Thanks for joining me. Hi there. Nice to see you. Hi, Ed. Wonderful. Ed and Loic are going to start by introducing themselves briefly, and then we're going to get into a chat about some of the key themes. Let's start with Loic. Sure, yeah. So I'm Loic and I'm the Chief Exec at CFEY, the Centre for Education and Youth. And I was the editor with Sam of the book and also wrote a chapter on exclusion in particular. So involved in various bits of the book. Wonderful, thank you. And Ed? Yeah, hi, Ed Van Care. I was the co-founder of Reach Academy in Felton in 2012. And in 2017, we also set up the Reach Children's Hub in Felton. And I now kind of lead the Reach Foundation, which focuses on the kind of more community focused aspects of our work. Smashing. Thank you very much. And Ed and Loic, can you tell me a little bit about how you first got to know each other and what made you interested in each other's work? Yeah, I actually remember quite well when I met you, Ed. So I don't know whether you remember. Well, maybe maybe I'm even wrong. Maybe I actually met you before. But I've, I've got a memory of meeting you. I think it was some really sunny day at Pimlico Academy. Is this the same recollection you've got? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it was one of, wasn't it one of the events when they were kind of promoting the idea of people, trying to encourage people to come up with ideas for free schools and so on. And I think maybe you just recently got back from America and you were talking about Harlem Children's Zone. And I guess that must have been when you were first coming up with the ideas that went on to go into to reach. Is that right? Yeah, I think that is right. And I remember... I think it was going and living in America for three and a half years that I think gave me the kind of confidence and the sort of like belief that we could, you know, that I could be part of kind of starting something from scratch. And so I think even before we met, I had for a long time been really kind of impressed and sort of as a as a fellow kind of Teach First ambassador, very proud of you vicariously for setting something up and not just setting up a new organization, but it felt to me like setting up something which was a whole kind of new like type of thing. And so I had been really interested in your work and particularly the focus on action and on doing, because I think over time I've had sometimes a frustrating relationship with academia, I would say, and kind of research in that it's not kind of driving to action. And that's always been a particular particular thing that I've been interested in and proud of the work that you've done um, with CFEY and before that with LKMCO. 
And it's funny because I think I was also, I remember that day, I was at the time particularly sceptical of the whole free schools thing. It was when Laura was working on the six predictable failures of free schools. We were about to publish that or had just published it. I mean, I remember you starting to talk a bit about what you had in mind and kind of thinking, oh, wait a minute, this sounds like quite a good thing, doesn't it? Um, And so we probably both kind of uh, challenged each other's preconceptions a little bit there. Totally. I was just going to say we're very grateful to Ed for also suggesting a speaker at our recent book event as well. Manji came to join us and he was really helpful in his contributions at the launch. And it would be great to hear a little bit about what you thought of the launch and the book itself, Ed. Yeah, I, I've really enjoyed reading it and I enjoyed the launch. Very star-studded and great that Manjit was able to, to make a contribution. I think the first thing that struck me was the stories and the narratives, the way that each chapter did get to that that voice of young people, which I know has always been has long been a focus of your work. But I also think it really kind of situated the work. And I think we connect, you know, we connect with stories, we connect with examples. And that that kind of created a lot of, I think, the the connection that I felt and 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 the kind of engagement with the ideas. I think I really appreciated the breadth of the book and the breadth of perspectives that it brought. And I think it does tell stories of, well, it is young people on the margins, but of stories that you don't always hear. And then I was really interested in, and this is a place I have a question for you, Like, I was interested in the recommendations and I liked the different levels that you were making recommendations at and the recommendations for different people, whether that was classroom practitioners right up to kind of national policymakers. And I'm curious to understand how you come up with those recommendations and in particular, how you balance the sort of potential impact of those recommendations with the likelihood and capacity for them to be implemented and how you kind of balance that. Yeah, that's a tough one. And I think it's funny, actually, because I guess what you're saying goes back a little bit to what you were saying about some of the frustrations you can get with academia sometimes. So I quite, yeah, one of the things I think academia does well is get to the heart of kind of the underlying causes of issues and sort of makes you question quite fundamental things that we take for granted. But what I don't think it sometimes does very well is say, okay, so here's what we're going to do with where we're at right now. But at the same time, I think certainly when I was a classroom teacher, I was just focusing on, you know, mitigating the issues that I saw. And I think that it's important to actually do the the underlying stuff too. So quite often in our reports, we do this thing of kind of saying, what can practitioners do? What can policymakers do? And also to think, what can a teacher do and a school leader do? Because it's otherwise you end up feeling quite impotent. So, you know, you can be a teacher who's stuck in a school where the school leadership are, are not backing the kind of things we're calling for. And what do you do then? It could be really dispiriting if there's nothing for an individual teacher to do. So I think we're quite keen always to say, okay, whatever's going on around you, there's at least something you can do. So here's something a teacher can do. Here's something the school leader can do despite the system. And here's how the system can support it as a whole. But then there's this question, as you say, about how blue sky to be about it. And we actually grapple with this quite a lot internally in terms of saying, should we be having some more out there idealistic ideas, as well as I think we tend to think of a more practical one. So we tend, yeah, we tend to take the world as it is rather than as it as it might be and that's often a tension for us and I've actually had that as feedback on the book is some people saying well don't you just need to rally against this system and call for a complete 
change to absolutely every, all the fundamentals of everything. And I, I don't, I, that's not, I don't think that's the role we play in the system, but then I think different people can play different parts in it. You have to look at it as an ecosystem as a whole and think, what are we best placed to do? You know, one of the young people during the, during the launch said about how we play this kind of insider outsider role and we balance those two. So it's our job to be close enough to those in power to be able to get them to implement changes whilst at the same time not being so cosy that we don't criticize them or that we accept the current perspective so and, and that's a weird balancing act and sometimes we get it right and sometimes we probably get it wrong so i think we all kind of have to negotiate that and i don't know how i mean you obviously decided to to tackle things quite practically by what you've done at reach so i don't know have you kind of grappled with those things yourself sometimes yeah i mean i think that there's something there's something very liberating and I think good for good for one's own mental health and sort of building relationships to to take what you just said, which is that different people have different roles to play in this work um, and to sort of acknowledge acknowledge that and that there's value in, as you say, there's value in doing and trying things. There's value in seeking to get to scale. There's value in staying you know, really focused in a community and trying to really build something. And different people will have different roles to play. And, and, and individuals and organizations might have roles that evolve over time. And so I think for us, you know, one of the things was, has been sort of making the choice to stay focused on the community that we started in, perhaps for longer than some others might have hoped we would and might have expected that we would. And so I think I, I recognize that sense of, you know, of the choices that you make as an organization yeah, affecting how things pan out, I guess. And actually, I guess you've done that expansion by starting off with a school and then gradually going wider and wider with the hub and so on. And we've also talked before, haven't we, about, you know, how can you leverage what you're proving, the kind of test bed of what you're proving there to affect system change. And I think part of what I hope we do with a book is to cast a light on what I call the kind of green shoots and that relies on people providing those green shoots for us to then be able to, to share those. But there's actually quite a healthy dynamic, I think, between someone working on providing those green shoots and then someone else spreading the word of it. <laughs> and I think the risk is that you don't engage with the kind of complexity and how much it's context specific. And so, yeah. you know, for us, the next stage is definitely trying to seeking to, to explore how these ideas can have an impact in other communities and what we'll learn from doing that and how mm. that can inform what, what we're already doing in Feltham and, and create that kind of ecosystem where we're, where we're able to kind of see different perspectives and see different ways of doing things and learn from that. Have you got any thoughts on how you're going to do that? Yeah, well, we're setting up what we're calling kind of cradle to career partnerships now with a number of other schools and multi-academy trusts. And the idea is very much to help them develop their own cradle to career model. So not to kind of implement the reach model, but both by working with them on what's happening in the school around kind of teacher development, around curriculum development, around sort of the relationships that, have, that, are, that there are within the school. And then also to start to help them to kind of create a footprint and a kind of to build their relationship with a wider ecosystem. So to do that kind of mapping, community listening, building partnerships, doing some convening. And so we've got a school in Dartmouth, down in the south in Devon, one in just outside Exeter, a trust in Manchester and a trust in East Leeds, who we're going to be working with over the next three years to kind of build their own kind of version of this. 
and then hoping to kind of add more of those sort of partnerships. And the idea is that there's a sort of school improvement element. They pay us to do some of that support. And then we reinvest about 85, 90% of that will be reinvested by us as seed funding, as and when they want to develop their own kind of children's hub. So it's, the idea is that it's a real partnership and we can, we can learn and grow kind of together through that. Oh, awesome. Well, they don't tell me about nice things happening in Devon or you're going to cause even more domestic tension in my household. I'm desperate to move to Devon right now. <laughs> if there's interesting work going on there now, I'm going to be even more like I have to go to Devon. There's no choice now. <laughs> Love it there. We all want to move to Devon at the moment. Lots of amazing, lots of beautiful places. Also lots of really interesting communities. There's a lot of young people who aren't getting the opportunities that they deserve. And so there's a lot of energy around the role schools can play and in the southwest so it's a really fun place it's a place that i've got to know a little bit over the last three years it's been really interesting to work there thanks for sharing that with us ed that's really interesting it sounds like a really exciting piece of work good luck with it we look forward to seeing how things develop thank you Loic, can you can you kind of give me a little bit of a, a an overview of the the kind of big themes that you've identified that kind of emerged from the book for you after after writing it you know after editing it and then you've now had some time where you've done the launch and you've I'm sure I had conversations with people. What are the big things that that, that that you're reflecting on and that people are talking about? Well, it's a funny one because when we when we came up with the idea for the book, I'd said to the publishers we wanted to pull together all the work we'd done on these discrete groups and discrete issues and work out what the overarching themes were. But there was a slight panic when it came to the actual editing and bringing it together. I thought, what what if there aren't any overarching themes? And I've said, this whole book's going to be about overarching themes and, and I can't find them. But yeah, luckily there were overarching themes. So that, that was a relief. So four themes we pulled out of it. And so to run through those, the first is what I'm, I'm kind of referring to as ending financial marginalisation, which I think is the kind of a bottom line system, one societal one, you know, to play to those different levels we were referring to earlier on. So it's it's the recognition that all the way through the book, you know, almost every page we end up referring to poverty and the impact of poverty. And just thinking that actually that that lies behind so many of these things that we have to grasp the net all a bit. And part of the reason I think it was it's really important to engage with that is because in 1999, we said we were going to eradicate child poverty as a country. And yet, just this week, I was in another debate and people were trying to give an example of a really massive aspirational but not very realistic goal. And they were like, imagine if we said we're going to half child poverty. And I was like, you, you realise we said we were going to eradicate it. This isn't that radical because because there's actually things you can do about child poverty and even that schools can do about child poverty. So I think initially I thought it was a bit of a pie in the sky one, but it's it's just not. So I think it was really important to put that out there up, up front as a key thing. And we finished with like the book closes with this graph showing child poverty over time and just shows how much it changes and how policy responsive it is. So, yeah, that's the first one. And the other one, the second one is what I call demarginalizing other services. And I say other services in quotation marks because I find myself referring to other services quite often. And I say, oh, it shouldn't all be down to schools. It should also be to do with other services. But I think certainly working in schools, you don't always pull apart that that blob and they're all isolated from each other so much. So that theme is all about saying schools can't do everything and that we need to understand the part that different bits play in the system, which is kind of why we, we've always called CFEY and education and youth 
think in action tanks. So it's not just education in schools. So that's all about recognising, you know, we've got a chapter in, in here about children who come in, into contact with social services, recognising the work that's going on on there, which Will, who wrote that chapter, says he's kind of slightly ashamed of the fact that as a teacher, he just didn't know about what was going on there in the system. So, yeah, that's that's theme two. And then the third one comes from this idea that the margins are not a binary and that young people can be more or less marginalised. So what we're arguing is that actually we should demarginalise the margins themselves, that young people shouldn't have to reach the extremes of the margins before they get help. Because we've seen with loads of our research projects that actually the reason young people end up in the situation they're in is because things weren't nipped in the bud early. There was such a high threshold of need that they couldn't access the support they needed when they needed it and that things things could have been tackled so much earlier. And when services are stripped bare, they have to focus on firefighting. So we're calling for, for actions that can actually demarginalise the margins in that way. And then the final one is perhaps in some ways the more intangible one. But I think it's really important. It's what I say comes from this recognition that young people are only really marginalised when they're on their own. So recognising that actually a lot of the young people we talk to just say that they wish that people had understood what was going on for them and had met them with the recognition of that and not necessarily made excuses for them and said, oh, well, you know, what do you expect? This is what they're going through. But had that bit of empathy to understand that and therefore be able to respond in a way that was informed by what was going on for that young person. And I think it's totally understandable that in the hustle and bustle and busyness of a, of a school day or, or, or in a busy professional's life, it can be quite easy to just process cases or respond to a particular situation without having the time to be able to actually understand what's really going on and what might be lying at the heart of an issue. So, so yeah, that's the fourth one. So four themes. So some of them very tangible, some of them very systemsy, some of them less so, but a, a mix by breaking them down into those different priorities for action within that, hopefully it makes them a bit more real as well. So yeah, I don't know what you think of those. <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, really interesting. Yeah, they're, they're the things that I picked out. I mean, I think that I think that the last one is, is, as you say, somewhat intangible, but kind of reminds me of a focus that we've had over the last kind of couple of years as we've learned more about community organising and the power of listening to listening without an agenda you know and and being really kind of open to understanding different perspectives and I think in the design of what we built in Feltham um, that focus on early intervention and kind of and that kind of really being present and really being being available was in making the school small you know build building it the way that we did decisions like being on first name terms between pupils, staff and, and parents, you know, help with that, I think, in terms of building those relationships. But I think it was that conversation and that interaction with community organising that really pushed us on this idea of, you know, I was asked the question, you know, how often do you have conversations without an agenda in your in the community? And I really, and the answer was not not often enough, you know, or quite rarely, in fact. And that has really helped us to kind of develop our work. Do you mind just saying a bit more about what you mean by this conversation without an agenda? I think it is about listening. The question that we have asked that has helped us to learn a lot is what puts pressure on you and the people around you? And when I was reflecting on the the interactions that I personally and that we as a school were having with with parents, with members of the community, to some degree with our young people, I, 
they were very, very often on our terms. You know, we had something to convey. We called a meeting. We wanted to say, you know, we wanted to communicate something. And actually, we weren't necessarily setting ourselves up to listen really carefully. I, I guess the other thought, and I'm keen to get to the, the conversations about the role of schools, because it's a particular kind of passion of mine, but the, the focus on poverty and the way that, as you say, came through on every page of the book was quite, I think, was striking. And, I, and it felt somewhat unusual, you know, in the discussions in the kind of narrative at the moment and feels really important. I think sometimes people working in education feel like reflecting on that and thinking about that is kind of an an admission of defeat. You know, it's kind of like that's not something we can't control. That's something we can't change. And it reminded me of one of the people that we've got to know and and learned from in the last kind of five years, developing particularly our work in early years is Naomi Eisenstadt, who was kind of the architect of the kind of sure start and the work that, that was done in the kind of the 2000s. And she talks a lot about and has really pushed us on, if you're going to work to increase capability and increase capacity, you've also got to be also reducing stress. And so much of the stress that people experience and that families experience is around poverty. And so you can only really do that work of building capacity where you're also making that effort to make life easier and more manageable for families. And that that was something that kept coming back to me when I was reading the book. Yeah, and I guess, I mean, I used to try and avoid talking about it in a way, because I think when you're teaching and stuff, I felt like I would be, then be making excuses and like limiting my expectations and saying, oh, well, because of poverty, these young people can't succeed. But there's there's a difference between saying poverty makes it harder for these young people to succeed and saying poverty means these young people can't succeed. But one doesn't mean that poverty becomes irrelevant and that it's not worth addressing that, particularly, you know, I think the whole Poverty Proofing the School Day campaign and so on has has helped show that there are things schools can do to at least mitigate that. And also, if we're a bit more honest about the fact that that stuff matters, I think it makes it harder to get away with policies that exacerbate child poverty. I think that's absolutely right. I think you're right that you you can say both things. And in a a similar way, I think you can work now to, you know, to mitigate the impact of stuff, to to develop sort of particular interventions and programs that are necessary now, while at the same time thinking systemically kind of at at a national or indeed at a local level and kind of takes us on to the conversation about sort of the role schools can play in the wider system. But when you've got those kind of wicked problems, they're not going to be solved quickly and with a sort of simple intervention. And so they do require a more thoughtful, a more a more integrated response. And I think you're absolutely right that you don't have to choose one or the other of those things. And you can be working on both of those strands. We're now going to take a break to hear a little bit more about CFEY's new book, Young People on the Margins, available now from Routledge, other bookstores and online. Stay tuned. We'll be back with the second half of the podcast after this short message. Our society leaves too many young people behind. People sometimes call them. Disadvantaged. Underprivileged. Vulnerable. Hard to reach. Forgotten. Misunderstood. 
challenging. But really, we all know it's more complex than that. The pandemic has widened gaps that already existed, revealing stark inequities. Young People on the Margins shows how we can all play a part in transforming our society into one that ensures all children and young people receive the support they need to make a fulfilling transition to adulthood. And now, back to the podcast. I wanted to ask you, Ed, so you say there about the question of the role of schools. What, what, what was your response on that? What do you think about that? I think that one of the positive things that's come out of the last sort of 15 months is an increasing awareness and recognition of the powerful role that schools can play in communities and that are playing in communities. I think a growing sense of agency from school leaders that they are kind of um, leaders. I think Leora Kratos would say civic leaders or community leaders. They are, they are powerful you know, agents in communities who can affect change. And I think that has been a really positive thing. And I think the kind of the civic role that schools have played in this period has been really kind of marked and noticeable, but it's not a new thing. And I don't think it's a role that that only needs to be played, you know, in the kind of period of crisis that we've been in. It seems to me that, you know, schools are they are kind of anchor institutions. They're often the best funded institutions in communities. They're the ones with the most kind of footprint. They're trusted. And I think they can and do play a, a greater role um, than purely kind of educating, you know, teaching particular things to a particular group of children. And so to me, this conversation about working in partnership it feels like a natural extension of that point that if you do have this universal institution which is kind of well resourced relatively speaking and trusted it's natural that that institution can really amplify its impact and the impact of those organizations around it in service of of young people that they work with so i feel i feel like it's a little bit of a no brainer that, that that would be a focus and and i think obviously it connects to the kind of early intervention strand that you were talking about as well. There have been some discussions about it recently. What are your reflections on this question? Yeah, I think your point about the universalism and the anchor is critical. Like, I think that, yeah, there are no other services really that are having that universal day-to-day contact with almost all young people and families. So as you say, it's a no-brainer to make the most of them. And I think, yeah, there, there has been this whole discussion that Ndidi and Laura have kicked off recently around cross-sector collaboration and, and whether that ends up wasting time. And I, my point in this whole discussion has been that a cross-sector plan or cross-sector collaboration doesn't necessarily mean needing to have loads of technocratic administrative meetings and boards and blah de blah It's actually about a plan for resourcing. And so... Ultimately, we know that part of the reason why schools want to get access to services for pupils, they want to make referrals to CAMS and so on, but they make the referral to CAMS and then they're told there's a two-year waiting list or whatever. And so what you've got there is is that schools are not able to make use of those other services because of under-resourcing. However, we need to recognise that if we're trying to meet all the different needs that young people have, 
a range of different organisations and groupings across the sector are going to have to play a role in that. And therefore, we need to plan for how we're going to resource them. Uh, but that, that may well still mean that it's the, the school that acts as, as the hub there. But the school, if, if those other services were resourced properly, it would actually free up resource within the school because you wouldn't be trying to deal with a mental health problem yourself. You'd have the resources to ensure the other services would have the resources to do it themselves. You would just be doing the, the signposting, which, which is what schools are well-placed to do, so long as those other services have, have the resources they need. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think in some cases there are, you know, real resource constraints, but I also think there is insufficient alignment of objectives as well at a kind of policy level and not enough mechanisms and encouragement, particularly across disciplines. So health and education being a great example where it's not simply a resource problem. It's a kind of appetite and an encouragement to collaborate around areas where there are kind of mutual priorities and mutual opportunities yeah and i think i mean the example i gave in the discussion the other day was about how at the moment there's some people saying oh actually schools over the next year just need to focus on young people's well-being because that's in crisis and we need to leave academic stuff for now but that's born out of a a lack of clarity of objectives and and resourcing if we recognize that Yes, there are things we need to respond to in terms of well-being and mental health, but that there's a division of labour on that. Then you no longer have have this kind of confusion as to to whether teachers need to press pause on teaching literacy and numeracy, which I think is causing this debate within the sector where people are arguing for prioritising different things. I'd be interested to know whether you felt there were any challenges around information sharing as well. I think in particular for for young people with special educational needs or mental health challenges, I feel that coming to Loic's fourth theme on the idea of of the importance of understanding and knowing a young person's story really well, schools are brilliant at doing that. But I feel that there are some challenges around how they are then able to transfer their knowledge and understanding of that young people to other services in order to enable that help from other angles. Do you think there's a kind of a a blockage there as well as limitations of the services themselves? Yeah, I I definitely think that that is a barrier. Um, I definitely think information sharing and kind of data sharing is is a barrier. I I wonder whether that is a barrier that's been made worse by kind of academization in the sense that you haven't got the same level of sort of alignment, perhaps, between kind of institutions that you might have had. And I think particularly for me, Alex, the place that that feels most most critical and most problematic is in early years mm. and and I think if if I was if I'd been encouraging you like to add another chapter to the book I, I would have been keen to see more on early years because I think it's an area of particular opportunity and and challenge you know in terms of bringing young people and families in from the margins and I think in that space there are very, very different agencies and sort of disciplines working with very young children. And there is a real lack of that kind of information sharing and insight sharing that would allow kind of the support to get to the people who need it most. And I guess that is where you see the absence of a universal institution like the school. And what happens where you don't have that Mm. is that that information kind of seeps away and isn't held and owned and really focused on. So for us, you know, we tried to build this kind of naught to three pipeline 
So we have antenatal classes, we have a support program that exists kind of throughout kind of the, the earliest years. And we've had since September 130 kind of referrals into that pipeline from health visitors, from midwives, all kind of infants and, and, and families who are now who we're now working directly with holding I think the the support and being able to do that signposting and that and that support in a way that that is often absent in that period mm, that's really interesting really good example of how you're how you're addressing it yeah I'd love to know what else there is in in kind of in terms of what you're doing at reach and what your plans are for how you might be responding to some of these challenges and priorities? Yeah, I mean, the newest strand of work that we're sort of focused on in Felton is what we're calling the Felton Convening Project, which is, I think, a response to a reflection on the kind of early years of setting up the Children's Hub and perhaps being a little bit too quick to act, too focused on kind of setting things up. You know, I have a kind of bias towards action. And so I think that we we wanted to take some time to reflect and to step back. Uh, and I think it also reflects trying to think about those really systemic problems and the systemic barriers that the young people in our community face. Um, and, and so we've, we've been really inspired by um, Strive Together in the States, which is this alternative cradle to career model to the Harlem Children's Zone, one focused on kind of collective action. So a coroner in Cincinnati did 20 autopsies in a week of kids under 18 who'd been shot. And at the end of that, he was kind of completely broken and obviously deeply distressed and went home and phoned around a group of people and said, I want to meet you on Monday morning and got them in a room and said, look, we need to do something about this. And you had a superintendent of schools, a police officer, a, a church leader there. And out of that grew this kind of strive partnership where the community and key institutions in the community kind of came together to identify, first of all, a kind of vision for that place and a vision for young people in that place, and then to identify kind of real challenges the community faced and to start to work together to to address them. And so we've, with some support from Strive and with the kind of inspiration of organisations like Black Thrive and Lambeth and, and Right to Succeed, we've set up a convening project in Feltham seeking to do something really similar. And so we have a, a steering group, which is made up of half members of the community, some young people from multiple schools, and then half kind of institutions. So our local universities are represented, CEO of the biggest local multi-academy trusts, some head teachers, the Commissioner for Public Health, early help lead for the borough, coming together to think about how we can build a partnership over a long period. So we're, we're going to do this for seven years. And we've identified four initial kind of focus areas. So the number of young people, the number of children who are eligible who are not accessing the two-year-old entitlement is one challenge that we want to address. Post-16 outcomes are much weaker in Feltham than, than GCSE outcomes are. We're thinking about the impact on adolescent mental health. That's a third theme. And then the fourth is around the experience of children and families with special educational needs. And so the idea is for each of those, we have a working group and they are kind of people doing that work and interested in that work. And we will start to amplify particular strands of work that are going on locally that are successful. We'll pilot different approaches. We'll build partnerships. And so it is a little bit that kind of cross-sector partnership, I think. And it feels like 
the way that we can start to try and create that kind of cradle to career coherence across the whole of, of the community, not just for young people who are attending our school. And if, if you kind of shift that local and practical lens and then shift that to the kind of system level lens, when you do something like that, what do you think the obstacles are to you doing that at a system level? If we're thinking now, okay, we've done the actions for practitioners, what are the actions if you are speaking to policymakers and saying what obstacles could they remove from your way or do to, to support you in that? What were the big asks there? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I mean, there's there's definitely something on a on a personal level about accepting that this kind of work takes longer and is slower and requires more uh, a kind of patience and a different set of skills. And I think, if I'm completely honest, it's helpful that we're still kind of running the children's hub and the school and we've got that kind of instant gratification of doing the work and seeing stuff happening all the time. That's certainly personally helpful to me. You know, even though I'm not running Reach anymore, I've handed that over to Rebecca. I'm still in school every day and meeting young people and all of that. And we've still got the kind of antenatal classes and the supporting parents into work and and the youth provision that we're still doing. I think that there is a need for patience and a need for relationship building across institutions to understand different perspectives. And I think that requires time and requires patience and requires a longer, a longer sort of time horizon for the work. And it feels like that's one opportunity for policymakers to give a little bit more space. We've had a couple of years without kind of league tables and so on, but we have been in a period where you know, it was kind of football management style for head teachers. You know, you need to improve your results straight away. And this kind of systemic work takes longer to come through. You know, I think for us as an organization, it has been helpful to reflect on the kind of change we want to see over 20 and 30 years, rather than focusing solely on, you know, our next set of results. And so I think that's one thing. And then I think this kind of work could be incentivized more at a kind of national level and encouraged. And I'm not totally sure how to do that, but it feels like it feels quite countercultural in a way that is regrettable, I think. I don't know if you have ideas about how how that sort of collaboration could be incentivized more, because it feels rich because it's happening locally and it is to some degree, well, it is entirely sort of ground up in our case. But it would also be good to have a little bit more encouragement coming from above. I don't know what you think. Yeah, well, presumably when Ofsted come in, for example, they they do look quite favourably at, at this stuff and and some of your kind of impressive Ofsted Ofsted findings and so on reflect the, the approach you are taking, right? Is, is that because I always think of Ofsted as the sort of qualitative counterbalance to the the quicker quantitative measures of the league tables. So I'd certainly want hope that that part of the accountability framework that part would be would be rewarding you for that is that is that not how it's working for you yeah so i'm sure that's right Loic. we haven't had an inspection since the hub and, and these projects have been really up and running so i can't speak for sure but i think there's definitely opportunity within the ofsted framework to acknowledge that kind of wider work that's happening but i, I but i guess that's kind of at a point in time isn't it and so I wonder whether so much investment is going into communities across different kind of, you know, government departments, for example, you know, the 
the, the, the health service is spending money through three or four or five different strands in Feltham. DWP is spending a fortune theoretically helping, you know, trying to help folks get back into work. You've got all the education budget and it just feels like there isn't an encouragement at a local level for the people, the commissioners of those services to come together and think, how can we, how can we, how can we make sure this is greater than the sum of its parts? And that's the thing that feels missing to me. Yeah, and I guess in the same way that, you know, I said about the the margin, how isolated different services are from each other. This is almost a product of the fact that different government departments are isolated from each other, right? And we, it's a, it's a well-known problem of government that cross-departmental working doesn't really work, is, doesn't function properly and that there aren't cross-departmental targets that work. And so it's yeah it's a what you're seeing there feels like a reflection of a of a system system level problem too i guess the other strand of work for us is kind of what i mentioned earlier around working beyond feltham and so building these kind of cradle to career partnerships is really exciting and then i think we're also really interested in this idea of kind of cross boundary leadership and I'm hoping that in the next kind of month or two, we'll be launching a kind of leadership program, which is which is across a number of sectors that involve young people, because I think that is a real gap currently in the system. There isn't that encouragement, that support, that kind of energy around leadership that seeks to work kind of across boundaries and across disciplines. And that's definitely something that uh, an opportunity that we see and something that we feel would be a useful kind of contribution to the sector and to the system. Yeah, I heard a bit about that the other day. It sounds really like a great initiative. Is there anything you want to say for listeners who might want to find out a bit more about that programme? How can they find out more? Yeah, so we hope to be in a position to kind of make an announcement about it kind of in the next month or two. And so I, I guess it's kind of watch this space. And, and James Townsend, who's kind of leading this work at REACH, would be, I'm sure, really interested to talk to people who who would be keen to be involved both in the kind of design and the delivery but also participating and we're hoping to have local clusters of leaders across sector working in different communities so yeah watch this space and news to come soon i don't want to get in trouble with the other partners we're not quite over the line but we're close <laughs> i'm spoiled because i'm gonna be catching up with james next week with my co-editor sam who will be particularly keen because he's a felton boy so he's uh, he's always keen to Sam Bowers is always uh, very excited to hear about anything going on in Felton. Great. Loic, do you know what's next for you? Because this is your swan song at CFEY. Do you have a plan? Do we know Do we know what's coming next for you? What's next on your radar? <laughs> I actually, I genuinely don't. I know that I will hopefully get more time to climb. I also am starting to come up with an idea for a second book. Watch this space on that one too. I've got a bit of an idea in gestation there. So that may be part of the mix, but um, yeah, we, we shall see. Fantastic. That's such a classic Loic answer. <laughs> You're such a free spirit. <laughs> we'll find you out in nature somewhere, <laughs> writing and thinking and being creative. That's wonderful. I feel really privileged to have been a fly on the wall for this conversation, guys. It's absolutely fascinating. And there's some really exciting developments there that will be wonderful to see what unfolds in the future. Perhaps I could just ask you one question to wrap up before we finish today. See both of your thoughts on this. If you could choose one group of people to take one action to tackle some of the challenges that we've been talking about today, who would you go for and what would you ask? Look? I believe that the 
practitioners and the professionals in the sector are raring to go and that probably the main thing stopping them is the resources. So I would take away that barrier and I would say that the government needs to turbocharge efforts to help young people to bounce back by by uh, by providing the resources that are needed. So taking those very simple steps to address some of the issues in the welfare system that are pushing people into poverty and resourcing the other services, in quotation marks again, so that schools and they can work together to to address the full range of issues. So I, I think that we have an amazing profession full of incredibly committed and creative people who are keen to, to, to take this challenge on. Um, so I just think uh, government needs to take the, take the shackles off them so that they can get on with it. Brilliant. Thank you. Ed? Yeah, I think that really resonates. Um, I think it would make a huge difference if you if government allocated the equivalent of the pupil premium to every child from conception to age three per year. And I think if you could create really high quality and Mm. ongoing seamless support for new parents and infants through that period, and in doing so, professionalise and build capacity in that kind of workforce to be really focused on kind of child development and on making sure that parents have a really kind of the right kind of support and the right kind of information that they need. I mean, having been doing this work for kind of 18 years, I know that the hardest thing I've done is is bring up two children. And I've been really fortunate to, to, to be part of a team doing that and to have a ton of support. But it's, re- it's really, really difficult work, especially in those for early years. And so I think we are far behind now what the evidence tells us about how important this is in terms of the way that we're resourcing it. So it's a similar answer to LOIX, but it's particularly focused on that space. If you gave an appropriately proportionate investment, mm. I think you could see a huge impact. And I think it would also it would have a huge kind of trickle down effect on schools or trickle up effect on schools because you would see children much more effectively prepared across the kind of breadth of what that looks like. So that would be my change. Mm, that's really interesting. Thank you. That's really helpful. And hopefully some motivation for some of our listeners as well. <laughs> Fingers crossed. It's been an absolutely fantastic discussion, both. Thank you so much for taking the time to come together and talk uh, today and to appear on the podcast. Really appreciate it. And wishing you both all the best going forward. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. Yeah, really enjoyed that. Great to catch up. Brilliant. Thanks so much. Bye. Thanks all. Bye. We love making this podcast. If you enjoy listening to it as much as we enjoy making it, there's a few things that you can do. One, subscribe. Hit the subscribe button in iTunes or wherever you're listening. Two, share. Share this episode with someone you know who will find it interesting. Three, review. Write a review or leave a comment. Also, feel free to contact us via the links in the show notes. Thanks a lot.